return in power and glory to set up his kingdom? Will believers at that time know when to expect him? Yes, there are many questions that we could ask, but we must never doubt that he will return. Hello and welcome to another edition of Verse by Verse. Steve Kreloff, pastor of Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida, is our teacher. We are in a series of studies on the Olivet Discourse, those teachings Jesus gave his disciples on the Mount of Olives. Today, Steve brings us the first part of a message entitled, The Time of Christ's Return. We know this will be of great interest to everyone listening. It will clear up a lot of speculations and false predictions made by some folks who do not rightly divide the Word of God. Here is Pastor Steve to begin our class. In the early part of the 19th century, there was a farmer in New York State by the name of William Miller. Mr. Miller spent much of his time studying the Bible, and as a result of his studies in the prophetic books of Daniel and Revelation, Miller became convinced that Jesus Christ was going to return to the earth sometime during the year 1843. Eventually, his views on prophecy attracted a number of followers who, like Miller, began to prepare for the coming of Christ. But when Jesus did not return in 1843, one of Miller's associates adjusted the date for the second coming of Christ to October of 1844. And when that date didn't materialize, obviously they were disappointed, and in time his Followers fragmented and formed a number of offshoot religious groups, one of them being the Seventh-day Adventists. But what was so interesting about William Miller's initial followers is that after the dates they had set for Christ's return didn't happen, didn't materialize, many of these people, instead of recognizing that they were wrong to set any dates and repenting of this practice, they merely concluded that their interpretation of the dates that they had set was wrong. In other words, they felt that setting a date for Christ's return was appropriate. It was right. It was, a, it was a good thing to do. Their only error, they felt, was that they had miscalculated the date. But I want you to know that Miller's followers were absolutely wrong. Absolutely wrong. Not only were they wrong in the date or dates that they had set, but they were wrong to set any dates. And they were wrong because Jesus made it very clear in his word that all date setting for his return is wrong because that information hasn't been revealed to anyone. And the place in Scripture where Jesus spoke about this is in the passage of Matthew 24 that is our study this morning. So I invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 24. And I want to read to you verses 32 through 41, which is one section, even though we won't cover all these verses this morning. We start at verse 32. Jesus said, now learn the parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. So you too, when you see all these things, recognize that he's near right at the door. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. For the coming of the Son of Man will be 
just like the days of Noah. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. Then there will be two men in the field. One will be taken and one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one will be left. Now, in listening to these statements by Jesus concerning his second coming, you may have found yourself being puzzled by some of them, wondering about some of the things that he said. And you would not be alone. Over the years, many students of of the Bible have wondered about a number of issues raised by Jesus in this passage of Scripture. In fact, James Boyce, in his commentary on Matthew, said that in this passage, in Matthew 24, he said it is the most difficult of all of the Olivet Discourse, all the teachings that Jesus gave that day on his second coming. In fact, he said, and I quote, this is the most troubling of all passages to Bible students and commentators. Gives them the most trouble. Now, what kinds of questions have these verses raised for students of the Bible? Why are they so perplexing and troubling and challenging? Well, for one thing, Bible students have wondered if the parable of the fig tree that that Jesus begins this section with in verse 32, they've wondered, is it symbolic? Is it representative of something else, specifically the nation of Israel. And if that's the case, then does this mean that Israel's rebirth as a modern nation, which took place in 1948, doesn't mean that the rebirth of the nation holds the key to the timing of Christ's return? Well, some have thought that. And that has led to all kinds of date setting. Others have wondered what generation Jesus was referring to when he said in verse 34, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Was the Lord speaking of the apostles' generation or some future generation? Some have seized upon this. Some unbelieving liberal minds, theologically liberal, have seized upon this to say, he must have meant the apostles' generation and it wasn't true, so Jesus didn't speak the truth. So was the Lord speaking of the apostles' generation or some future generation? And if a future generation, which one? Third, some have been puzzled over Christ's prohibition against setting a date for his return because it would seem, it would seem that anyone living during the tribulation period would be able to figure out exactly when the Lord was coming back. How? Well, let me explain. Jesus said that he would return after the tribulation period ends. So it would appear that all someone living during that time period had to do was just figure out when the day started, what day started the tribulation, then figure out seven years after that, and they could figure out when the Lord is coming back. That's what it would appear. And they could figure out the day that it would start because Daniel chapter 9 tells us that the tribulation period officially begins when the Antichrist signs a peace treaty with Israel. So, why did Jesus say that we shouldn't set dates, that nobody knows when it would appear, on the surface at least, that you could know if you lived at that time? 
But even beyond the question of why setting a date would be wrong, many Christians have been troubled over Christ's statement in verse 36 that he didn't know the day of his return. He said, but of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. Now, what troubles people from this statement is that if Jesus is God, then he knows everything because omniscience is an attribute of God. So how could there be something that Christ said he didn't know, especially something as important as the day that he would be returning to earth? And if those aren't enough questions to perplex serious students of the Bible, we see that Jesus makes a statement at the end of this section in connection with his coming that has left some people wondering if he's referring to the rapture or his return to earth. Look at verses 40 and 41. Then there will be two men in the field. One will be taken and one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one will be left. Now, if these two verses are referring to the rapture, and they certainly use language that sounds like rapture talk, not rap talk, but rapture talk, one will be taken, one will be left, then does that mean, if that is the case, does that mean that the rapture will take place at the end of the tribulation and not before it? So, folks, you can see from just these these few considerations that this passage of Scripture that we are about to study today, and it will take two weeks to go through this, at least two weeks, it does raise a number of legitimate and serious questions concerning issues relating to the return of Christ. But I want you to know that as challenging as these questions and issues are, I believe they can be answered, and I believe they can be answered correctly. And the way to make sure that we stay on track and are correct in our interpretation of Christ's statements is to make sure that we take into account the context, the setting in which these statements were made. Most interpretation that people are confused about can be cleared up almost immediately when you consider the context. Now, if you'll recall, the context is this. The entire chapter known as the Olivet Discourse, because it was given by Jesus while he was on the Mount of Olives, is about a coming seven-year period of time known as the Tribulation Period that will take place just prior to the Second Coming. And the reason the Lord even spoke about his Second Coming here and the events leading up to his return is because the disciples at the beginning of this chapter had asked him a couple of questions that they wanted answered concerning his appearing. Let's go back to verses 1 through 3. Here's the context. Jesus has left Jerusalem. He's about to leave Jerusalem, the city, for the last time. He has basically pronounced judgment upon the city. You'll see his face no more. And it says, starting in verse 1, Jesus came out from the temple and was going away. Now, let's stop there. He had made this pronouncement about you'll see me no more until you say blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He leaves. He walks out of the temple complex. He is leaving the city of Jerusalem. And we read as he was going away, his disciples came up to point out the temple's buildings to him. And he said to them, do you not see all these things? Truly, I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another which will not be torn down. 
Now, they were impressed about the temple buildings and they were concerned. You said you're you're going to come in, in judgment. And they said, Lord, but, but look at these beautiful buildings. He said, it's all going to be destroyed. Now, for, between verses two and three, the Lord proceeds to leave the city of Jerusalem. If you've ever been to Jerusalem, you know, the topography, you leave the old city. You walk down the valley. There are roads there now, paved roads, but not then. They would have walked down the Kidron Valley and then you reach the bottom and it begins to ascend. As it starts to ascend would be the Garden of Gethsemane. But as you go up, it is the Mount of Olives. So starting in verse three, we read this. He's left Jerusalem, he's gone down that valley, he's gone up to the Mount of Olives. As he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Now, in light of Christ's statement about the coming destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, these disciples wanted to know two things. Now, keep in mind what their thoughts were. Thinking that the destruction of the temple would take place at the end of the age. It didn't. It took place in 70 AD. But thinking that the destruction of the temple would take place at the end of the age when Jesus, they felt, would establish his kingdom on earth, These men wanted to know two things, two things. Number one, when would this take place? In other words, when will you appear to establish your kingdom on earth? That is to say, tell us the time of your appearance. That's what they wanted to know. Secondly, they wanted to know what would be the sign that would tell them that this was about to take place. His appearing was about to take place. In other words, the disciples asked for a sign to indicate when the present age would end and his kingdom would come and materialize. Now, by a sign, they probably had in mind some supernatural spectacle that they thought would take place in the heavens just prior to the ushering in of Messiah's kingdom. But instead of giving them just one sign, that's all they asked for, Jesus gave them several signs a number of signs that would take place just prior to his return and the establishment of his kingdom. So from verses 40, uh, verse four, rather, through 31, we hear Jesus giving there actually five specific signs. We've already gone over this. I'm only going to mention this. You can look it up on your own. But here's what he was saying. Now, keep in mind, he compared them in verse eight to labor pains of, of a woman who was getting close to delivering. And the thought here, the analogy is that Just as labor pains increase in intensity and duration as it moves closer to the birth of a baby, so these events, these signs will increase in intensity and duration as the birth of the kingdom gets closer. So he starts off in verses 4 and 5 by saying there will be an increase in counterfeit messiahs. There's always been false messiahs, but there'll be an increase in them. Verses 6 and 7, he said there'll be an increase in conflicts between nations. There's always been conflicts between nations. There will be an increase. Third, he said there'll be a rise in calamities on the earth in verse 7. Specifically, earthquakes, famines, plagues. Always been earthquakes. We all know about Haiti. But it will increase. It will intensify. It'll be worse. It'll be worldwide happenings. Fourth, he said there'll be a heightened and intense contempt for believers in himself. Led by Antichrist, 
because believers will refuse to worship him when he sits down in the temple in Jerusalem and says, worship me, I'm God. Believers as well as the Jewish nation will refuse. That is the abomination that makes the temple desolate. They'll head out. He'll be so enraged at Christians, he will lead a worldwide hunt against them to track them down and kill them. So there'll be an intense contempt for believers in Christ all over the world. Fifth, there'll be cosmic disturbances in the heavens, which will be capped off by the primary and supreme sign of Christ's return, as someone called it the sign of signs, which is Christ himself illuminating the darkened universe. He'll turn the lights out in the universe. Then he will come in a blaze of glory. He'll come in the clouds of the sky in great power, great glory, as he lights up the darkened sky with the radiance of his glory. We read this in verses 29 and 30. But immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give up its light. And the stars will fall from the sky and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then the sign. Here's the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And Jesus said at that time in verse 31, he said, then the angels are going to collect all the believers across the planet and bring them to him. Now, this is where we left off here with Jesus giving the fifth and the last of the signs of his coming. However, if you'll recall, as I mentioned, the disciples had not only asked for a sign, but they also said, Lord, when, when will you appear? That's what verse three tells us. They wanted to know when will these things happen? But up to this point, up to this point, Jesus has said, had said nothing about when he would appear. He's just spoken about the signs that will point to his appearing. But all that's about to change. Because starting with verse 32, Jesus proceeds to give a parable about a fig tree and then some other information pertinent to his return that does address the question of when he's coming back. And that is the focus of our passage this morning and next week, the, the time of Christ's return. As the passage unfolds, we see two basic truths about his return, about the time of his return. Number one, the time of his return, he tells us, is near. Number two, the time of his return has not been revealed to anyone. We'll look at that next week. But this morning, we want to look at the first truth that the Lord teaches here about the time of his return, and that is, the time of his return is near. So we begin by looking at verse 32. He said, now learn the parable from the fig tree. The Lord begins this section by calling his disciples to, to learn a certain truth from a, a parable that he's about to give them concerning the fig tree. Now, once again, I remind you that a parable is essentially an earthly story or concept, but usually a story that conveys a spiritual truth. You can put it this way. It's an earthly story that teaches a heavenly truth. In this case, Jesus chose something that all of his Jewish followers would be very familiar with in order to teach them an important truth about when he would return. He chose a common fig tree, a tree that grew in abundance in Israel in those days, and especially 
on the Mount of Olives. And it's very likely that that within sight of our Lord was a fig tree on the Mount of Olives, and he probably used it as a visual aid. But even if there wasn't a fig tree nearby, certainly what the Lord said about the fig tree was common knowledge to all of these men that he spoke to. And what did he say? Verse 32. Now learn the parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. This is really a very simple verse. This is really a very simple truth to understand. The danger is when people want to read into this something that's not there. You see, most of the trees in Israel at the time of Jesus, and for all I know today, were evergreens. Therefore, they didn't change much with the seasons. That's why they're called evergreens. However, this was not the case with the fig tree. When the sap begins to flow into the branches of a fig tree, it makes them tender, makes them very soft, and new leaves begin to appear. And when observers in Israel would see those leaves on a fig tree, they knew that it was springtime. That was a sign. It's springtime, and therefore summer was near. As we would put it, it was right around the corner. In fact, because it was Passover time that Jesus spoke these words, it's very likely that the budding of new leaves on the fig fig trees in the area had already begun. That's why I say it's very likely that there was a visual aid within sight. Now, that's the simple earthly story of the parable. Nothing complicated, really nothing hard to comprehend about this. You don't need to be uh, an expert in trees. It's just laid out there for us. Just the obvious fact that a fig tree with tender branches and emerging leaves indicate that summer is near. It's just a truism that everybody would acknowledge. However, as with all the parables that Jesus gave, there was a spiritual lesson, an important heavenly truth that was to be learned. In fact, that's why Jesus said, learn the parable from the fig tree. In other words, he wanted them to learn an important lesson. That's what he's saying. And the, and the Lord communicates what that lesson is in verse 33. Here's the lesson. So you too, when you see all of these things recognize that he, or it's actually in the Greek, it is, meaning he or the kingdom, is near, right at the door. When you see all of these things recognize that he's near, right at the door, looking down the prophetic corridors of time, the Lord tells us that the believers who see all these things, meaning all these things happening, should recognize that his coming is near. It's very close. Remember that the Olivet Discourse is all about the time after the rapture of the church. That event can happen at any time. There is nothing that has to be fulfilled for Jesus to snatch the members of his body, the church, from off this planet. The terrible seven-year tribulation will follow. My friend, I hope and pray you are ready for that great event. If you aren't sure, we would love to talk with you and show you from the Word of God how you can be sure you are ready to meet Jesus Christ. Call us at 727-239-0306 if you have any questions. You can also go to our website, versebyverseradio.org, to hear this study again. There are also many other studies you can download for free. That's versebyverseradio.org. 
Verse by Verse comes to you from Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. The church's address is 1893 Sunset Point Road in Clearwater. That's about halfway between U.S. 19 and the beaches. Pastor Steve would love to meet you in person and talk with you. You may call the church at 727-441-1714 to arrange a meeting. Until next time, this is Jerry Pruden inviting you to join us then for another program of Verse by Verse. You've been listening to Verse by Verse, sponsored by Verse by Verse Ministries. This program was pre-recorded. To learn more, including how to donate to this ministry, visit versebyverseradio.org. That's versebyverseradio.org. Hey, it's Andrew Southwick for Faith Talk 570 and 910 and online at com. The life of Joseph begins in Genesis 37 and goes all the way through Genesis 50 which makes Joseph's story the longest narrative in the book of Genesis. Joseph's life was one that seemed to unravel as it unfolded throughout the book of Genesis. But through it all, Joseph would recognize God